morning. Uh, if you'd like to open your Bibles or your corner posts, we're going to be looking at today Ecclesiastes chapter 10. They say that all of human history is divided into two distinct periods. And they are BC, before Christ, and AD, which is not after his death, but from the Latin, Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. It's a very significant phrase because in the year of our Lord means that something absolutely earth-shattering has happened. And that is Jesus has defeated death. As we've just sung about, uh, everything has changed because of the resurrection of Jesus. As we've been making our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been looking at the meaninglessness of life under the sun. And that is under that particular period, B.C., before Christ, before death had been defeated, Solomon looked around at everything and he just went, it's all hevel. It's all meaningless. Nothing lasts because death takes everything away. And yet now we do put the spectacles on and we see that death has been defeated and there can be meaning. Well, with that word of introduction, let's hear what Solomon has to say, or rather I should say what the Spirit of God has to say through his servant Solomon. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Even as he walks along the road, the fool lacks sense and shows everyone how stupid he is. If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great errors to rest. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions, while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback, while princes go on foot like slaves. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed. But skill will bring success. If a snake bites before it is charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Words from a wise man's mouth are gracious, but a fool is consumed by his own lips. At the beginning, his words are folly. At the end, they are wicked madness. And the fool multiplies words. No one knows what is coming. Who can tell him what will happen after him? A fool's work wearies him. He does not know the way to town. Woe to you, O land, whose king was a servant 
and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. If a man is lazy, the rafters sag. If his hands are idle, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes life merry. But money is the answer for everything. Do not revile the king even in your thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom because a bird of the air may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. Let's pray. Father, what a great blessing and delight it is to worship with your people this morning, to worship you, the true and living God, the one who defeated sin and death, the one who provides meaning in our meaningless life under the sun. Father, we pray that you will pour out your Holy Spirit upon us now, that you will give us ears to hear. We pray that you'd block out the distractions and the worries of this day and of this past week. We pray that you'd give us the grace to sit quietly at your feet now and that we would hear your voice speaking to us through your word. Father, bless us, encourage us, challenge and perhaps even rebuke us as our need be. But Lord, may we go from here changed and strengthened, comforted through your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we near the end of our series on the book of Ecclesiastes, it's really easy to start to turn off. To start to think something like, yeah, 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 I've heard it all before. Ecclesiastes, you know, it just keeps on saying the same thing over and over again. As Solomon himself says, ironically, there is nothing new under the sun. You might even be starting to think that Solomon is like one of those tottery old grandpas, the one um, who tell long-winded stories about their childhood and their nostalgic past, but which family members respectfully listen to but are not really interested in anymore. But can I just say, that would be a terrible mistake. Because what we're going to see today is Solomon keeps presenting us with a fresh perspective on how to live wisely under the sun now. Because his words are divinely inspired insights as to what it means to live life well in this fallen and broken world. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I think the book of Ecclesiastes is the greatest book of philosophy ever written. I know that's a big call, but it's true. Not just for Solomon's insight into the human condition, but also for the brevity of words in which he writes it. Most books of philosophy, if you've ever had the pain of having to read them, especially the more recent ones written in French or other European languages, are so dense as to be almost 
impossible to understand. At least for the normal everyday person on the street. In fact, these philosophers glory in how difficult they are to read. It's as though the fact that they are so hard to follow reinforces the claim that they're making that they are so much smarter than everybody else. But you know what? The talent of a truly gifted intellectual is demonstrated in their clarity. It's in their ability to communicate complicated, complex truths in a way which is both clear and concise. And so the fact that the document that you are holding in your hands right now is over 3,000 years old, and yet it is just as relevant now as when it was first written, is a testimony to, not, to just how wise Solomon is. For it has stood the test of time. And as such, it really is a masterpiece of what you might call theological philosophy. An examination of how to live life well in this meaningless and broken world. And if you ever think, oh yeah, but you know, it's easy, try and have a go at it yourself and write down something similar. And see how difficult it is to even come up with one or two proverbs. But with that said, chapter 10 of the book of Ecclesiastes is considered by nearly all Old Testament scholars to be one of the most difficult chapters to interpret in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Not because the verses in and of themselves are difficult to understand, they're actually quite clear, but because it's very hard to know how the entire chapter fits together. In particular, why does Solomon structure it like he does? What's more, what is the unifying theme that keeps the whole chapter together? Those are legitimately difficult questions to answer. Because Solomon goes from one issue to another in a scattered, almost frantic kind of way. But that is just the point. Because that's precisely what life is like. And as such, how Solomon structures what he writes here is, I think, intentionally chaotic. It's a case of art imitating life. You see, we don't deal with real-life issues in neat and tidy philosophical compartments. But in the course of a single day, we're regularly confronted with every conceivable problem. We're bombarded with the injustice and frustration of what it means to live life in this meaningless life under the sun. Whether it's problems at work, issues with the wife and kids at home, political corruption in high places, or never to forget the sinful depravity which exists in each and every one of our own hearts. Life is more often than not a complicated white hot mess. And so what we need is wisdom. Divinely inspired instruction as to how to live life well in the here and now. 
And the answers which Solomon provides are as helpful as are they once again profound. They can be summarised by looking at the potential impact of four really small and seemingly insignificant things. And they are a little city at the end of chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, a bunch of dead flies, an untrained snake, and finally a little Tweety bird. Don't be fooled though by any of their size. Because God's word shows that just because they are small doesn't mean that they can't have a really big impact. Because just like each one of those things, a little bit of folly can do a whole lot of harm or destruction. Just take the first example of the little city at the end of chapter 9. Michael touched on this last week. The story being that there was once this little city which was attacked by this great and powerful king. But even though they were completely outnumbered, they were delivered through the actions of a poor but wise man. Do you remember this? What he did exactly, we're not told. Because quite frankly, it was beside the point. The point is, this great and powerful king was defeated by the advice or the actions of an unknown and poor man. We're not even told his name. And against all odds, this little tiny city was delivered. Sometimes a little wisdom can do much good, even when it comes from somebody who is poor and completely unknown. But here's the sting in the story or the twist in the tale. When the city was remarkably, some might even say miraculously delivered, did the people of the city make the man their mayor? No. Did they rename the city after him in his honour? Nope. Did they perhaps even build a statue of him commemorating what he had done. Once again, no. Seeing what is going on today and all the foolishness in our society, it's probably a good thing they didn't do it because I would have torn it down years later because he had the wrong colour skin. Instead, what we're told is that no one in the city remembered the poor man. Not only that, but Solomon tells us in verse 12 that the poor man's words were despised. And his words were no longer heeded. Even the wisdom which he exercised in saving the city was rejected. How unfair or meaningless is that? But in this fallen world of life under the sun, wisdom more often than not goes underappreciated and underrecognized. Living life well then means paying attention to the quiet words of the wise rather than to the loud shouts of fools. 
Because as Solomon says in verse 18 of chapter 9, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. In other words, don't become dependent upon recognition. You may well be right in what you've said or done, but don't demand that people recognise what you've done and seek some form of public vindication. Because wisdom is often found in quiet and lowly places. So make sure you keep looking for it there. Because it can be really easy to overlook. The second example Solomon mentions is in verse 1 of chapter 10. And it involves a bunch of dead flies. Which is a really apt illustration, I think, of what Solomon has just been talking about regarding one sinner who destroys much good. Solomon says in verse 1, As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. Wow. There's so much practical truth and real-life application in this one single verse. How often can one particular character flaw nullify all the genuine good which someone does in every other area. It's tempting to think that because this present life is characterised by meaninglessness, that it wouldn't matter what we do or say. But Solomon says you'd be wrong. Everything we do and say now is incredibly important. Because one sinner or a little folly, which we try to justify in ourselves can destroy much good. I wonder if verses 2 to 9 kind of unpack or follow on from what Solomon is saying here. Not perfectly, I know, but in a way which is almost parallel or at least similar. For even as someone walks along the road, it becomes obvious where their heart is at. Whether they're following the way of wisdom or they're flirting with Madame Folly. Because it really is a choice between those two paths, or what you might say, those two loves. Either we worship the Lord and choose to walk in his paths of righteousness, or we live for ourselves and we do whatever our own hearts desire. By the way, it should go without saying that the Bible doesn't use the terms right and left here in the modern political sense of the words. It's not like the right refers to conservatives and the left to those who consider themselves to be more socially progressive. No, in ancient Israel, the right hand had connotations with power and deliverance of moral goodness and favour. And that's why the place of honour was always at the ruler's right-hand side. The left hand, though, represented incompetence and even perversity. And so to stray to the left meant that you were off doing your own thing, regardless of what God's word had to say. Think of the Garden of Eden again. Living wisely in a fallen world, though, means this. Ruthlessly resisting sin at every point. Ruthlessly resisting sin at every point, of aiming for perfection, 
of not giving foolishness or foolish thoughts or behaviour in ourselves even an inch. That we think it's not excusable. Because just like a few dead flies in an expensive jar of ointment, it negatively affects your whole life. Like panicking and leaving your post when the boss is upset. Rather than be patient in hearing out what they have to say. Or appointing the wrong person to a position of power or influence, even though you know that they're not the right person for the job. Or not being aware of the obvious dangers when you dig a pit, break down a wall, quarry stones or split logs. Just a tiny bit of folly can cause a great deal of injury, pain and damage. Or as Solomon says in verse 10, we can be too lazy to do what's needed to prepare for the work ahead. You know, we know that the proverbial axe needs to be sharpened. But we just couldn't be bothered to do what is needed to prepare. Not only does a dull axe become dangerous to use though, but it takes a lot longer to get the job done. How much better to patiently prepare yourself for the task ahead? Have you ever done something like that? You recklessly run headlong into a situation only to quickly realise that you should have exercised more caution and self-control. In my first congregation in Weewar, all of the farms had these massive diesel generators on them. They'd pump thousands and thousands of water uh, up from the ground onto their cotton crops. I was visiting one of the farmers uh, in my congregation one day and he was telling me about the temptation to cut corners, to jump over uh, the opening, the open um, spinning axle, which was going, you know, at full speed, just above the ground, just about a foot off the ground. Just really tempting just to step over it so you get to the other side to fix it. Rather than take 20 seconds to like walk all the way around to the other side of the diesel generator. He said more than a few farmers he knew had lost limbs or even their lives doing something foolish like just trying to quickly jump across. I'll never forget, he said, one day there was a friend of his. He said he didn't know what happened. He tried to quickly jump across. The axle gripped his clothes, ripped the clothes right off. <laughs> and he got off lucky. The crazy thing was, is that they were so wise in every, part, every other part of their farming. These were some of the most prudent men I knew. Driving tractors, welding steel, using all kinds of highly dangerous chemicals. But sometimes it's that split-second dumb decision which cancels out all of the good that you've done. And afterwards you think, I didn't think that. And that's exactly the point. We didn't think. The third example Solomon mentions is similar to this and it's that of the untrained snake in verse 11. It's a bit of a strange analogy at first because honestly, 
Who today wants to charm a snake? Come on. But the same kind of thing happens in every walk of life. You use something before it's properly tested simply because you lack the wisdom to be patient of exercising the self-control of what psychologists refer to as one of the most important things that we can develop, especially in our children, and that is delay gratification. That's the real challenge, isn't it? Having the wisdom to be patient and wait. Showing self-control rather than running off at the mouth, as Solomon says in verses 12 to 14. Of being gracious rather than spiteful. Of being restrained rather than lashing out at other people, especially with our tongues. In short, living life well means being self-controlled and considerate. It's about knowing the way to town rather than winging it and seeing if you can find the right way there on your own. How much better though, not to mention humbling, it is to pull over to the side of the road and work out the best route to take. Why is that so difficult? In the same way, living life well means being disciplined with our actions. Whether it's who is appointed to positions of honour and authority, verse 16, or even when we enjoy our food and wine, Life in this fallen, meaningless world doesn't mean we throw caution to the wind. But we give careful consideration to everything we do. Earlier on in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 2, verse 24, Solomon writes, A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. Then later on in chapter 5, verse 18, Solomon says again, I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun. Even though that is true, it's really easy to overindulge in those things, isn't it? Contrary to popular opinion, you and I can have too much of a good thing. For instance, whether it's, it's good to eat and drink, but it's obviously wrong to give ourselves over to gluttony or drunkenness. Doing that just leads to ill health, bad governance, as well as personal suffering. Being wise, though, means being patient and disciplined. Or as the psychologist would say, delay gratification. It means not handing yourselves over to your lusts and desires. Can I just stress this? Not handing yourself over to do whatever your heart wants to do. That is the way of folly. Because the heart is deceitful above all else. Who then can understand it? To simply follow what your heart wants to do is the path to madness. And indeed, the Bible would say wickedness. Solomon says in verse 18, if a man is lazy, the rafters sag. If his hands are idle, the house leaks. You see, there's a problem of overindulging and there's another problem of not caring about anything at all. It's interesting to notice how often the Bible exhorts us to work hard with our hands, to not eat the bread of idleness or to be lazy 
The Apostle Paul has an awful lot to say about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He even tells us to stay away from the Christian brother or sister who is idle. And that while he was with them, he even laid down this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. This is a theological truth I think we need to recapture in our day. All too often we think our Christian duty is to help those who, quite frankly, will not help themselves. Who wrongly keep on asking for financial assistance when what they actually need is a word of rebuke. Verse 19 is another one of those verses which is especially striking because it's so realistic. Solomon says, A feast is made for laughter and wine makes life merry. But money is the answer for everything. Some people think that the truly spiritual person has no interest at all in money. But the truth is, money does a lot of good. Indeed, so integral is money that there is not a problem, humanly speaking, which it cannot fix. Obviously, there are limits and it's not a completely absolute statement, but as a general principle, it's true. Money is able to alleviate all kinds of human suffering. The point Solomon is making here, though, is to learn from the untrained snake. And that is, take the time to build wealth. Don't be impatient and use it all up straight away. Live wisely in this fallen world and exercise patient discipline in saving money. Because life is so uncertain. Solomon says in verse 14, No one knows what is coming. Who can tell him what will happen after him? All of which brings us to the fourth and final example. And I think in this way, this one's the most challenging of all. And that is the tiny little Tweety Bird in verse 20. Take a look again with me so you can consider carefully what it's saying. It's only a single verse, but it's incredibly important. Do not revile the king even in your thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom because a bird of the air may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. The use of the tongue is the number one topic in the book of Proverbs. The tongue is used in every chapter and words such as tongue, mouth, lips are used in the book of Proverbs nearly a hundred times. In the same way, the book of Ecclesiastes says that we are, how we use our words is incredibly important. Indeed, already at the start of verse 14, we read how the fool multiplies his words. Especially when it comes to the many inextricable decisions of government and those in authority. How easy is it to criticise, complain and cut them down? But Solomon warns that we should have the wisdom to once again show restraint. 
to go against our natural inclination and talk about how bad those in authority are. God's word says we should guard not only our words, but do you notice this? But also our thoughts. Even in the privacy of our own bedrooms. Why? Because a little Tweety Bird may take our words and repeat them to others. And who knows what the impact of our speech might bring. There was a poem written in the 17th century which paraphrased this verse by saying this. Sorry, it's in Old English. Curse not thy rulers, though with vices fraught, not in thy bedchamber, nor in thy thought. For birds will bear thy whisperings on their wings to wide ears of death-inflecting kings. It's not without significance, is it, friends, that Twitter, one of the biggest social media platforms in the world today, has for its icon a little blue bird. In fact, when someone finds out something about us, which we thought no one else knew, we ask them, how'd you find that out? We still use the expression today, don't we? Oh, a little bird told me. How many celebrities, politicians, professional athletes have had their entire careers destroyed by an ill-advised tweet or text? How crucial is it then that we endeavour to be constrained in our speech, to let our words be few and to exercise discipline and self-control even over our thoughts? Martin Luther once said, A wise man teaches with few words and says what he feels with brevity. Fools, on the other hand, spill over with words and cannot be restrained or put down with words so that they will keep so that they will keep quit but will answer one word with a thousand well we've covered a lot of ground this morning but the question still remains how do we understand and apply this part of god's word to ourselves as christians well as the apostle paul writes in 1 corinthians 1 the message of the gospel is the weakest most foolish, smallest thing of all. To the world, it seems like nothing. But to us who believe, it is both the wisdom and the power of Almighty God. Because when we put our trust in the person and work of Jesus, we are made right with God. For on the cross, Jesus took the punishment for our sins. He paid the penalty and absorbed into himself the Father's wrath and he became for us, did you notice this? Wisdom from God. As the Apostle Paul says, Jesus is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. But here's the really remarkable thing. God deliberately achieved this glorious salvation through what is obviously a very weak and lowly act. I mean, who would have ever boasted in the excruciating death of another person which happened approximately 2,000 years ago? As if that makes any difference anymore. 
to the world that rightly seems so small and insignificant as to be pathetic. But for us who have been given the gift of saving faith, that event is the wisest, most powerful thing to have ever occurred in the history of the world. It is the defining event which will echo on down throughout eternity. In the book of Revelation, there's this amazing vision John receives in chapter 5 of the heavenly throne room of God. And it's nothing short of awe-inspiring. We use that word too flippantly today, don't we? We have a nice cake or we see a great view and we go, that's awesome. But this is truly full of awe. John hears a mighty angel asking the universe, who can open the scroll in God's hands and break its seals? Is there anyone powerful or wise enough to unleash the contents and action God's plan? And to John's great grief, there is none. At least no one except the Lamb of God who was slain. You see, the whole perfect life, death and resurrection of Jesus has changed the very fabric of the universe. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he alone took the scroll and unlocked its contents. And because of that, all of heaven and earth should fall down and worship. We should see Jesus as high and lifted up. The one who is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Is Christ all of that to you? Or do you see him as being too weak, too small, too insignificant, too tiny? Just because the death and resurrection of a man might seem all of those things doesn't mean it's insignificant or without incredible cosmic effect. In fact, I hope you can see it's the most incredible thing of all. What are you worried or afraid of right now? Jesus is greater. Are you worried about your finances? Jesus is greater. Are you worried about your relationship with another person and how it might turn out? Jesus is greater. Are you worried about your own health and whether you might in the future be impacted or perhaps even die? Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than anyone or anything you and I might face. May the Lord God Almighty pour out his Holy Spirit upon us that we might know his son Jesus all the more. May you know his love and grace, the peace and forgiveness available for us who believe. And may you know his power and wisdom that you would live your life well under the sun until he comes. Well, on that note, why don't we spend some time in prayer, shall we? Let's pray.
Oh, Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we fall down before you and we are humbled by who you are, by what we have seen in your word. You are perfect, we are not. You are holy, we are sinful. Lord, you know where each and every one of us is at. We ask that you would assure us again of your forgiveness, of your acceptance through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that his blood washes away all of our sin. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit fill us with wisdom that we would live life wisely under the sun in the here and now. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. And may you remind us of these truths in the week ahead. Father, we commit ourselves into your hands and we ask for your blessing. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?